everybody. Welcome to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, Carrie Parker. And today is episode 251 for December 20th, 2021. I hiccuped a little bit there because I was looking at that number like a 251. Man, that's that's a lot of episodes. That's almost five years. Wow. Hard to believe I've been doing this podcast this long. But okay. Anyway, we've got a new show for you today. And man, do we have a lot of stuff to cover. Obviously, the big one is going to be this log for shell or log for j problem. Uh, that has been ravaging the internet. Uh, we are really just beginning to see the the outcome there. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, so we're gonna we're, we'll definitely talk about that. I'll try to get into what it really means, you know, how it really works to some extent, and what we need to do going forward. Also, I have a funny little op-ed piece about cybersecurity that I've been wanting to read for a while. That we'll get that one in today. Finally, I've been so it's been on my list for a long time. It was recommended to me by one of my patrons, and I thought it was really interesting, so I'll start off with that one here in a minute. I have a report on a bunch of popular Wi-Fi or wireless routers that have some serious security vulnerabilities. I'll tell you what to do about that. I've been wanting to talk about this Life360 report that I saw recently that was really bad, though not surprising. I'd never heard of it, honestly. I guess it's some sort of a family safety app, uh, but unfortunately, it's been selling your detailed location data. Also, Consumer Reports just did a really amazing report on VPNs, and we've talked about those many times on the show, but it's a good time to revisit that, and uh, especially with this report, and it's it's unbelievably comprehensive, but very easy to read. So I'm going to read you a couple snippets from that and give you some advice. There's a payroll service provider that I'd never heard of that apparently has been attacked with ransomware that might actually affect your paycheck delivery here in the United States. I'm maybe even internationally. I'm not sure how big this company is, but we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit. Got a little bit of news about LastPass and several interesting new features were just dropped in iOS updates and macOS updates. So I want to tell you a little bit about those and then we'll round out with a tip of the week where I'll tell you about a horrific new program that Verizon has happily opted everybody into without really telling you about and I will tell you, of course, how to opt out. And that will give me an opportunity to also talk about T-Mobile and AT&T. And obviously, that's very United States-centric. But the, the same will hold true basically around the planet, I am sure. And then I've got several interesting announcements to make after all the news today. So be sure you stay tuned after that. But lots to talk about. So let's get to the news. <laughs> First up, this is a really clever uh, op-ed piece that was written in the LA Times, and uh, let me just read it because it's, it, it's, it's funny, it's clever, and it's got some great takeaways. So anyway, it says, The news today often contains reports about cybersecurity breaches that steal our data or threaten our national security. The nation spends billions of dollars on cybersecurity measures, and yet we seem unable to get ahead of this problem. Why are our computers so hard to protect? Recent experience with a house cat provided insights into the nature of this problem. I'm allergic to cats. My daughter came home cat in hand for an extended stay, and I had to find a way of confining Pounce, that's the name of the cat, to a limited area. However, as many cat parents would have known, though I did not, this was doomed to be a losing battle. Everything that I tried to confine Pounce worked for a little while, but eventually failed as he found a way past my newest security barrier – just as hackers eventually find their way through the cybersecurity barriers erected to stop them. I have the advantage of unlimited material resources compared to those available to the cat. I am presumably smarter than a cat, I have greater manual dexterity, and I'm a higher mammal who knows how to use tools. 
Why did I lose this battle so decisively? Here are some of the cybersecurity lessons that became clear from my ordeal. 1. To succeed against a determined attacker, and Pounce was very determined, I have to be willing to go all in sooner rather than later. Even then, my victory may not be entirely decisive. But what certainly won't work is to deploy security measures that will minimally do the job because I am too lazy to do the full Monty at the beginning. 2. Pounce has the advantage of unlimited time, and he tries until he succeeds. It may take a few days, but eventually he does. Moreover, Pounce only needs to succeed once to get out. Every one of my confinement measures needs to work to keep him confined. 3. Greater material resources and more intelligence do not necessarily overcome the huge advantage of Pounce's ability to make an unlimited number of attempts to circumvent my barriers. If he fails on any given attempt, he incurs no penalty. My daughter would be quite distressed if it did. 4. Pounce has a powerful protector, my daughter, whose wrath I am unwilling to confront for diplomatic reasons. Hackers operating out of foreign states often have the backing of those governments, even if they are nominally operating as free agents, and we may not have adequate leverage to persuade the protectors to take action. 5. My defense measures succeeded completely until they didn't. That is, it looked like I was winning the battle to confine Pounce right up until the moment I saw Pounce outside the confinement area. And this happened repeatedly, and so I was often lulled into a false sense of security. 6. Being able to take Pounce's perspective would have helped me immensely in crafting appropriate defenses. But viewing the world from eyes at a 6-inch height from the floor would have been very difficult for me, and so I didn't do it. He thus saw ways of circumventing or destroying my defensive measures that I did not see. And finally, 7. Manipulating people can be more powerful than any technical defenses. What in the cybersecurity world is called social engineering. When Pounce mews plaintively and looks into my daughter's eyes, my daughter just opens the door to the confinement area and he walks out. My daughter may have agreed to help me keep Pounce confined, but he was often successful in turning her loyalties. In cybersecurity lingo, my daughter was a trusted insider that went rogue. In the end, I quote-unquote won the battle when my daughter moved out, taking Pounce with her. There, too, is an important cybersecurity lesson. Without a computer to be compromised, cyber attacks are not feasible, so don't use computers when they're not necessary. My toothbrush and refrigerator work just fine without high-tech communications capabilities, thank you. And I would really prefer not to incur any more cybersecurity risks. Anyway, that was a great article, and thank you so much to the patron who recommended that to me. And sorry it took me so long to actually read it on the air. All right, now let's get to the news. Uh, first up, this is from Bleeping Computer, and it talks about nine Wi-Fi routers that have 226 flaws in them. Security researchers analyzed nine popular Wi-Fi routers and found a total of 226 potential vulnerabilities in them, even when running the latest firmware. The tested routers are made by Asus, AVM, D-Link, Netgear, Edimax, or Edimax, TP-Link, Synology, and Linksys, and are used by millions of people. The front-runners in terms of the numbers of vulnerabilities are the TP-Link Archer AX6000, having 32 flaws, and the Synology RT2600AC, which has 30 security bugs. Researchers at IoT Inspector, and that's the name of the company who did this report, carried out the security tests in collaboration with Chip Magazine, CHIP, focusing on models used mainly by small firms and home users. And this is a quote from Florian Lukowski, who is the CTO and founder of IT Inspector. And he says, quote, 
For chip's router evaluation, vendors provided them with current models, which were upgraded to the latest firmware version. The firmware versions were automatically analyzed by IoT Inspector and checked for more than 5,000 CVEs and other security issues, unquote. And as we've mentioned before, CVE stands for Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures. It's a, it's a naming system, a common naming system for cybersecurity bugs. Their findings showed that many of the routers were still vulnerable to publicly disclosed vulnerabilities, even when using the latest firmware. While not all flaws carried the same risk, the team found some common problems that affected most of the tested models. I and mean, they took off five things here. Uh, one, outdated Linux kernel in the firmware. Two, outdated multimedia and VPN functions. Three, over-reliance on older versions of BusyBox, and I'll talk about that in a second. Four, use of weak default passwords like admin. And five, presence of hard-coded credentials in plain text form. Now, BusyBox is kind of a prepackaged embedded version of Linux, which is a very popular open source um, uh, operating system that is, because it's open source and free, is used all over the place. So anyway, it's basically, basically it's, it's, a, it's a common platform used to make a lot of computing devices, especially IoT devices, and therefore if there's a problem in that, then there's a problem in a lot of these devices as well. Jan Wenderberg, and it, it might be foreign, maybe it's Jan, uh, the CEO of IT Inspector noted that one of the most important ways for securing a router is to change the default password when you first configure the device. And this is a quote from Jan, it says, quote, changing passwords on first use and enabling the automatic update function must be standard practice on all IoT devices, whether the device is used at home or in a corporate network. The greatest danger, besides vulnerabilities introduced by manufacturers, is using an IoT device according to the motto, plug, play, and forget, unquote. All of the affected manufacturers responded to the researchers' findings and released firmware patches. CHIP's author, Jorg Geiger, commented that the router vendors addressed most of the security flaws identified by the working group, but not all of them. The researchers have told Bleeping Computer that the unpatched flaws are mostly lower-importance vulnerabilities. If you are using any of the models mentioned in the report, you are advised to apply the available security updates, enable automatic updates, and change the default password to one that is unique and strong. Additionally, you should disable remote access, universal plug-and-play, or UPnP, and the WPS, or Wi-Fi Protected Setup Functions, if you're not actively using them. So anyway, I thought that was a good summary of things you should be doing with your Wi-Fi routers. The biggest one being keep it updated. And if you've got an, an older router, and by older I would say four to five years old or older, uh, certainly if it's much older than that, uh, you really should be getting a, a newer router. And when you get a new router, look for one that has an auto-update function built in, and then make sure you enable that if it's not enabled by default. Honestly, all of our IoT devices at this point should have it. That I hate to say the word regulation again, but that may be the only way we get this stuff to happen is that because these devices are everywhere now and they're cheap and security is an afterthought if it's a thought at all. And people don't know how to update these things. A lot of people don't even know that you need to update these things. But if it's got a connection to the internet, then it's got a computer in it. And if it has a computer in it, it's running software. And if it has software, all software has vulnerabilities. And therefore, you need to keep that software up to date. And if that device is no longer supported, meaning that there are no more software updates coming, then you should seriously consider <laughs> either at least making it a dumb device and dis you know, disabling whatever internet connection it may have or removing it, or at least replacing it with something newer and better that is being maintained. All right, next up, this is from uh, the markup. 
which I don't know if I've read from these guys before, but um, it's about Life360, which I had, I had not heard of. It's what they call a family safety app, but unfortunately it's selling out its users uh, and being pretty mealy-mouthed about <laughs> explaining why they're doing that. So anyway, here is here's a snippet from the markup. It says... Life360, a popular family safety app used by 33 million people worldwide, has been marketed as a great way for parents to track their children's movements using their cell phones. The markup has learned, however, that the app is selling data on kids' and families' whereabouts to approximately a dozen data brokers who have sold data to virtually anybody who wants to buy it. Through interviews with two former employees of the company, along with two individuals who formerly worked at location data brokers Cubic and Xmode, the markup discovered that the app acts as a fire hose of data for a controversial industry that has been that has operated in the shadows with few safeguards to prevent the misuse of this sensitive information. The former employees spoke with the markup on the condition that we not use their names as they are still employed in the data industry. They said they agreed to talk because of concerns with the location data industry's security and privacy and a desire to shed more light on the opaque location data economy. All of them described Life360 as one of the largest sources of data in the industry. And this is a quote from Life360 founder and CEO, Chris Hulls. I guess he responded to the authors of this uh, for the purposes of the, of the report. It says, quote, We have no means to confirm or deny the accuracy, unquote, of whether Life360 is among the largest sources of data for the industry. And then he goes on to say, quote, we see data as an important part of our business model that allows us to keep the core Life360 services free for the majority of our users, including features that have improved driver safety and saved numerous lives, unquote. A former Xmode engineer said the raw location data the company received from Life360 was among Xmode's most valuable offerings due to the sheer volume and precision of the data. A former Cubic employee joked that the company wouldn't be able to run its marketing campaigns without Live360's constant flow of location data. Hulls, uh, again the CEO, declined to disclose a full list of Live360's data customers and declined to confirm that SafeGraph, who is one of the ones mentioned in part of the article I cut out, citing confidentiality clauses, which he said are in the majority of its business contracts. Data partners are only publicly disclosed when partners request transparency or there's, quote, a particular reason to do so, unquote. He did confirm that Xmode buys data from Life360 and that it is one of, quote, approximately one dozen data partners, unquote. Hulls added that the company would be supportive of legislation that would require public disclosure of such partners. Two former Life360 employees also told the markup that the company, while it states it anonymizes the data it sells, fails to take necessary precautions to ensure that location histories cannot be traced back to individuals. They said that while the company removed the most obvious identifying user information, it did not make efforts to fuzz, hash, aggregate, or reduce the precision of the location data to preserve privacy. Hulls said that all of Life360's contracts prohibit its customers from re-identifying individual users along with other privacy and safety protective practices. He said that Life360 follows, quote, industry best practices, unquote, for privacy and that only certain customers like Cubic receive raw location data. The former Xmode engineer said that the company also received raw data from Life360. The company relies on its customers to obfuscate that data based on their specific application, Hulls added. So this was a longer article, and I cut out, obviously, some parts of this. The takeaway here is that these companies... <laughs> apparently this I've never heard of this product, uh, but apparently it's free to a lot of its users. Maybe they have paid upgrades. 
but they come right out and say that in order to keep it free, we have to make money somewhere, basically, and they make that money by sell selling your data to other people. And of course, in this case, it includes your kids' location data, which is, I don't even know how that's legal today. But they're not taking the security and privacy seriously. They're doing the bare minimum minimum so that they can claim that they're supposedly anonymizing this data. But in so many cases, especially with location data, it could be very easy to re-identify people based on this kind of data. And then, like I've talked about before, they're kind of pointing the finger at each other saying, you know, well, we give you this data, but we, you know, expressly tell them in our contract they're not allowed to do bad things with it. Well, I mean, are they policing that? No. That was basically the explanation that Facebook gave about Cambridge Analytica. You know, we make this data available to researchers and tell them they can only use it for certain research purposes and whatever. And then they don't follow up and don't check on that and don't police it. And then it gets abused and and they point the finger at their contract saying, well, we told them not to abuse it. Okay, so well, <laughs> yet another story like that. It just makes me so angry that we cannot get a handle on this stuff, that we as a society can't come together and decide that this is just wrong. I'm not against advertising. I'm not against marketing. But you just, you, we've got to respect privacy. We don't need to track people like this in order to give them relevant ads. Sure, we could give them hyper-relevant ads if we do stuff like this, but the dangers are way too high. The consequences are just horrific if this stuff gets abused by the wrong party. And it's just, it's just too easy to do. Okay, moving on. Uh, Consumer Reports, they do great work. Uh, I've had some of those representatives on the show before. I'd love to get them back sometime soon. Uh, but they just released a really great report on VPNs, and, and they evaluated the VPNs from a perspective of security and privacy. And they set aside the things that you often see in reviews, which is what does it cost and how hard is it to set up? Uh, you know, those are those are valid. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about something that's got privacy right in the name, virtual private network, it's important that you understand the privacy. And just because it, it has privacy in the name doesn't mean it's actually private. It depends. It comes down to private from whom. So anyway, they had a really nice report. It's pretty long. I think, I don't know, a couple dozen pages, but it's also easy to read and well done. Uh, so if you're in the market for a VPN and you really want to understand you know, whether or not the one you're choosing is the one you want and it suits your needs in terms of security and privacy, this is a great report to read. So I'm just going to read that they actually have a couple articles kind of built around the report, and I'm going to read a couple excerpts from each of those. Uh, so for the first one, it says, Many people looking for stronger data protection and privacy turn to commercial VPNs or virtual private networks. A VPN is a service that directs your data through an encrypted tunnel. That means that your internet service provider, or ISP, such as Comcast or Verizon, sees that you are using a VPN, but doesn't know anything else about what websites you're visiting. If you use a VPN, everything you see and do online, watching videos, sending email, browsing through news sites, goes through the VPN's servers or servers they pay to use. And that's a kind of a weird reference to, I'm sure, things like Microsoft Azure or AWS, which are, you know, third-party cloud computing services that they probably contract uh, with. Security experts have mixed opinions on who can benefit from using a commercial VPN. These services can be useful, especially if you want more privacy from your internet service provider. On the other hand, using a VPN requires some level of trust because that company now gets all the information you are hiding from your ISP. 
Either kind of company is in a position to make money by sharing your information with data brokers, and you're counting on them to keep it secure from attackers. The bottom line? You shouldn't use a VPN unless you trust it more than you trust your ISP. Which, unfortunately, sadly today, is probably almost always the case. <laughs> but just because you distrust your ISP doesn't mean you can trust your VPN provider. Consumer Reports conducted an in-depth test of 16 well-known VPNs, carefully evaluating their security measures, like how resistant they are to leaks and hacks, and their privacy practices, like how much data the services themselves collect and what it's used for and who it's shared with. We based our results on inspection of VPN features, analysis of network traffic, evaluation of user interfaces, and publicly available documentation. We also looked at various VPNs' marketing copy, and whether it accurately presented the products and their underlying technology. We found problems with a number of these VPNs, along with dozens more that we screened before beginning our in-depth analysis on the test group, with input from researchers at the University of Michigan. On the whole, the VPN industry can do better on a number of fronts. However, three VPNs came out ahead, MoleVad, iVPN, and Mozilla VPN. All three had characteristics that many security experts look for in nearly any technology platform, such as open source code, public third-party security audits, and ways for outside researchers to report vulnerabilities. And these VPNs all accurately describe their products and services to customers, something you can't count on with many VPNs. All right, and then I'm going to skip to a separate but related article. We found that 12 out of 16 of the VPNs we looked at either inaccurately represented their products and technology or made hyperbolic or overly broad claims about the kinds of protection they provide their users. These claims, combined with a constant stream of news reports about security breaches, can lead people to worry more than necessary about banking online or visiting websites that are already encrypted using HTTPS. They can also give VPN users a false sense of security if they don't realize that the protections offered are not comprehensive. For example, many VPNs have promised complete anonymity or untraceability, or protection from advertisers, governments, and criminals. However, advertisers and governments are both able to track people in many ways not involving their IP addresses, which is what VPNs obfuscate. And your data can be compromised through phishing, malware, and other various methods that VPNs can't address. As another example of how VPNs can make overly broad claims, a number of them say that they provide quote-unquote military-grade encryption. Many security professionals say that this term should be a red flag for consumers because it doesn't really mean anything. There is no one standard form of encryption used by the military. Spokespeople for several VPN companies contacted by Consumer Reports say that broad product descriptions may arise because the companies are trying to explain complicated nuances in just a few words. And they point out if you dig deeper on their websites, you can often find additional information that explains that VPNs are just one layer of protection, that points out the VPN's limitations, and that tells users to take additional steps to stay safe. Others pointed to additional products offered, some of which are included with a VPN subscription. However, Consumer Reports found that four VPNs, Mulvad, iVPN, Mozilla VPN, and TunnelBear, do a very good job of describing their products and giving practical advice on what other services and techniques customers should use to stay safe. All right, so there's a lot of really good wisdom uh, in, in this story and those two stories and in the report. But let me summarize it this way. So VPNs, again, they create this encrypted tunnel. And uh, the, the analogy I like to use, it's kind of like the tunnel underneath the, the Stalag in Hogan's Heroes, right? These guys have a secret way out of the prison camp that they're in 
that, that lets them get away from camp and go do their sneaky spy stuff and then come back without being seen. But it's a tunnel that leads from underneath one of their bunks uh, and goes out and comes up under this tree stump uh, outside, the, outside the gates. Now, once they come out of that tree stump, they're perfectly visible. But what they're trying to do is evade notice by the guards in the camp. So the, the way the analogy works in this case is you are trying to avoid being seen uh, what you do on the web, you know, what sites you go to, how long you stay there, what sort of data you might be transmitting. You're trying to hide all of that from your internet service provider, because as we will find out later in today's show, your ISP uh, is free to notice all of those things and sell that data on to data brokers or use it themselves to try to target you with advertising. So if you don't want your internet service provider, and by that, I'm not just talking about like your home internet service provider, but also your mobile service provider. If you don't want them having access to that information, you might use something like a VPN, which would make all of your traffic over the internet opaque to them. They would not see you coming and going, basically. But what you're doing in all of these cases is you are trading your trust, or in this case, your distrust of your ISP for trust in another service provider, your VPN service provider, because what your ISP can no longer see, your VPN provider can. Now, uh, they make a very good point in that today, much of our internet traffic is fully encrypted already. Now, that is to say that your individual connections between you and your bank and you and Amazon.com or any website you go to today is almost surely today protected with HTTPS, the S being for secure, meaning it's encrypted. So that doesn't hide all the metadata. Like they still know that you're going to these sites. They know where you're going. They know how much traffic you're sending. They just can't see the contents. So in that sense, you know, a VPN provides less additional value. It would prevent them from seeing where you're going at all. Uh, but most of your you know, interactions with those websites is already encrypted. And this has been a recent development. This is because of uh, an effort called Let's Encrypt, which allowed websites to, for free, set up the necessary framework to have HTTPS communications with everybody who wanted to visit their website. That wasn't always the case. So anyway, that, that being said, your ISP is definitely paying attention to what you do and probably by default opting you into whatever marketing and tracking programs that they have. And they keep adding more because it's a very lucrative thing to do, tracking and selling your, your web habits. And they'll, I'm sure they'll trying to aggregate and obfuscate and de-identify, you know, you specifically, but, um, it's honestly in practice, not hard to re-identify people. So anyway, um, I've heard Mulvad come up in many, many respected VPN reviews. I'm currently using NordVPN. I, prior to that, I was using ExpressVPN. The problem is these things change all the time. So it's really a moving target. That's really hard to keep up with what the current best one is. But uh, I have heard Mulvad come up many times. And I was actually very pleased to see Mozilla's VPN show up in, uh, in their list too as one of the top ones. That's great. All right, moving on. Uh, speaking of Mozilla, uh, who makes Firefox, the web browser, and the one that I recommend everybody use, they have just released a really cool new security feature. So let me read from the Tech Republic. It says, Firefox, the little browser that could, continues chugging along. And while other browsers are constantly battling one crisis or another, the Mozilla developers are addressing what matters most for modern web browsers, security. This time around, the developers have released Firefox 95, which includes a new subsystem called RLBox. 
RL Box is a new method of sandboxing, which makes it easy to efficiently isolate subcomponents and make Firefox more secure. And I'll explain some of this in a minute. RLBox uses WebAssembly to isolate possible buggy code. How RLBox works is complicated, but it breaks down by first compiling a process into WebAssembly, and then the converted process is then reconverted into native code. What this does is prevent code from moving between different portions of a program and limits access to only specific areas of system memory. All web browsers run content within their own sandbox processes. This is done to prevent code from exploiting vulnerabilities. The problem is that bad actors attack by chaining together vulnerabilities, one used to compromise a sandboxed process and another to escape the sandbox. In order to defend against this type of common attack, browsers must then require multiple layers of protection. To do this, Firefox uses RLBox to place two key restrictions on target code. First, it isn't allowed to jump to unexpected parts of the program. Second, it can't access memory outside of a specific region. These two restrictions make it safe for Firefox to share an address space between trusted and untrusted code so that they can run in the same process. RLBox is a big step forward for Firefox security because it protects users from accidental defects and supply chain attacks. As an added benefit, RLBox reduces the need for developers to scramble and fix something when an issue is disclosed upstream. As for end users, there's nothing to configure, enable, or install. RLBox is ready to go with Firefox 95. So if you're serious about web browser security, make sure to upgrade to the latest version of the open source web browser immediately. Okay, yeah, so this <laughs> this article did attempt to try to explain what that means. And I'm honestly I'm not gonna go too much deeper into how this stuff works, but Again, all software has vulnerabilities, all software has bugs. And when you go to websites, it is chock full of code today. It didn't used to be that way. But JavaScript uh, is run in your web browser along with other types of web-based coding like WebAssembly. Uh, it's software. It's you're basically, when you're going to websites today, you're running software. It's more than just showing text and images today. You're actually running software. And it could be doing things like you know, just showing you an ad that that's moving uh, or doing weird stuff. It could be enabling fancy, you know, features where you click on something and expands into something else. All that's done today with JavaScript. And so what this technology is doing is trying to, it's kind of like an, it's kind of the equivalent of the operating system on your computer. Everything that all the websites you're going to, all this code that's running is all run on a platform or a framework for your computer. That platform is the operating system for surfing the web. That platform is the web browser. And so making the web browser inherently more secure and, and building in safeguards and guardrails for the software and web pages that run in that web browser helps to keep you more secure. So anyway, this is a great new feature. I'd love Firefox. We really need to support these guys <laughs> and we really need to stop, stop using Chrome and all the browsers, honestly, that are based on Chrome, which includes, you know, Microsoft Edge. And even I think, gosh, I think even the Brave, the Brave browser, the Brave browser is interesting. I get it. Um, it does some interesting stuff. But at the end of the day, my go to the one I still recommend for everybody is Firefox. But I don't know how much longer, honestly, these guys can keep doing what they're doing. I don't know how they're getting enough money to survive. But they need more users. That's <laughs> they need people to be downloading and using Firefox. So if you want to support these guys, just use Firefox and encourage your friends and family to use it as well. It really is a great browser. I, I don't know that there's anything that Chrome does that Firefox doesn't. In a lot of cases, doesn't do better. And certainly for privacy alone, 
you need to not use Chrome. If you're a purely Apple person, Safari is pretty darn good for privacy and security. But if you use Windows at any time, Linux, uh, Android, whatever, uh, I, I prefer Firefox. All right, so let's move on. Let's, let's address the elephant in the room, the 800-pound gorilla story, which is log for shell and log for shell is the clever name given to the vulnerability found in this tool that none of you have probably ever heard of, but is used everywhere called log4j. So this article was written a week ago. So uh, keep that in mind as I'm reading this. And this had just, honestly, this whole thing had just kind of broke right after I finished recording last week's podcast. So I, I want to spend a little time on this. Let me, let me read this article, which is a nice kind of summary from Ars Technica. Uh, about what this is, and then I'm going to give you some more information about what this is and why this is such a bad problem. Uh, And uh, I'll tell you what you can do about it, which, (laughs) spoiler, isn't much. Okay, here we go. Log for Shell, and that's spelled L-O-G, the number four, and S-H-E-L-L. Log for Shell is the name given to a critical zero-day vulnerability that surfaced on Thursday, and again, this would have been a week ago Thursday. When it was exploited in the wild in remote code compromises against Minecraft servers. The source of the vulnerability was log4j, and that's L-O-G, the number four, and the letter J. A logging utility used by thousands, if not millions of apps, and it's definitely millions, including those used inside just about every enterprise on the planet. The Minecraft servers were the proverbial canary in the coal mine. In the four days since, and again, this is already old, It's clear Log4Shell is every bit as grave a threat as I claimed, and this is the author saying this, with the list of cloud services affected reading like a who's who of the biggest names on the internet. Threat analysts and researchers are still assessing the damage so far and the outlook over the next weeks and months. Here's what we need to know for now. What is Log4J and what makes Log4Shell such a big deal? Log4J is an open-sourced, Java-based logging tool available from Apache. And Apache is an organization that does a lot of great web stuff. It has the ability to perform network lookups using the Java Naming and Directory Interface, or JNDI, to obtain services from the Lightweight Directory Access Protocol, or LDAP. The end result, Log4J will interpret a log message as a URL, go and fetch it, and execute any executable payload it contains with the full privileges of the main program. Exploits are triggered inside text using the dollar sign open curly brace close curly brace syntax, allowing them to be included in the browser user agents and other commonly logged attributes. Now that's a really dense explanation, but it does cover the basics, and I will come back to explain more of that in a minute. The vulnerability tracked as CVE, and, and again, that's what I mentioned earlier today. That's the common vulnerabilities and exposures system that we use to um, designate these things. And here's an example of one tracked as CVE-2021-44228. And you'll notice there that that 2021 is the year. Anyway, this vulnerability has a severity rating of 10 out of 10. It cannot get worse than this. The zero day has been exploited at least nine days before it surfaced. Researchers at Cisco's Talos security team says they observed exploits beginning December 2nd. What has happened since Log4Shell surfaced last Thursday? And again, that was two Thursdays ago. Almost immediately, security firm Graynoise detected active scanning attempting to identify vulnerable servers. 
Researchers report seeing this critical and easy-to-exploit vulnerability being used to install crypto mining malware, bolster Linux botnets, and exfiltrate configurations, environment variables, and other potentially sensitive data from vulnerable servers. What's the prognosis? In a best-case scenario, major brokerages, banks, and merchants will invest huge sums in overtime costs to pay large numbers of already overworked IT employees to mop up this mess during the holidays. We don't want to think about the worst-case scenario, other than to remember that the 2017 breach of Equifax and the resulting compromise of 143 million U.S. consumers' data that followed when that company failed to patch against a similarly devastating vulnerability. Sounds bad. What should I do? Yeah, it is. As an end user, there's not much you can do other than to hound the services you use and ask what they're doing to keep the data you entrust with them secure. The most useful thing the cloud services can do is update Log4j. But for large enterprises, it's often not that simple. Dozens of security companies have published guidance. Advice from Microsoft and Sophos is here and here. And of course, those are links which you cannot click on in an audio podcast. Uh, but if you look at the show notes and find the article, it's down there toward the end. Okay, let's set aside enterprises for now. If those people at this point better know what the heck they're doing uh, and be furiously working to fix these problems. I want to go into a little more detail of what's really going on here because I think it's instructive. So log4j, what the heck is this? When you're writing software, one of the key tools you have as a software developer to debug your code, either locally as you're developing it, or once it's actually shipped and used, being used in the field, are logs. And it's pretty much what it sounds like. In your code, as your code is executing, and the computer saying, do this, do this, and then if, if this, then do that, if not, do something else, as, it's, as your code is being executed and taking certain paths through the software you wrote, you can basically have what we call kind of print statements. <laughs> and, and what that basically means is as the software is being executed, you could say, I want to print a log with some information that will be date and time stamped and, and logged in order such that when I go back later and if I can access these logs, I can see what the software was doing at any given moment. And that would help me understand what choices it made, what flow it took, what path it took through the software, kind of like breadcrumbs. I like to, I like to call logs kind of like breadcrumbs or that you can follow uh, to see what path was taken. And that is extremely crucially important for software developers trying to figure out what went wrong if something went wrong, is to look at the logs and see where things went off the rails. And so there are many, many ways to do logging and software. When you're writing in Java, which is a programming language, there is a tool that's been around forever called Log4j, and which is basically now what it sounds, right? It's logging for Java. And it's a really nice utility, a tool for enhancing and making your logging easier and a lot more flexible. And so because of this, it's used everywhere. Now, <laughs> Apache, who is the organization, the foundation, that wrote and maintains Log4j, this utility, for some unknown reason, and and I, I don't really mean to call these guys out particularly because this kind of decision is made all over the place. Microsoft has done this, Apple's done this, where you take this tool that's very useful and you want to make it more powerful. And so what they've done is they have allowed developers to 
do these kind of meta things when they do logging. It's not just enough to print a message and print some of the data, for example. Like uh, if you're not careful and you're doing your logging incorrectly, when someone logs in and sends you a username and password, you could log their username and password like right in the open. And therefore someone could go look in that log and then read your username and password. That would be bad. So, you know, some of the things that you make sure you do is you don't do that or you obfuscate that data or whatever. But Log4j has this thing, this capability that allows you to have what is logged be interpreted on the fly to do even more powerful things. And the way you trigger that in Log4j is that you, in the text, in the, in the message or thing that you are logging, the, the characters, the strings that you're printing that you want to be recorded in this log for future reference, you can surround parts of that with this little tag. And the way you denote that, it's a dollar sign, open curly brace, some data, something in the middle there, and then a closed curly brace. And when Log4j sees that, when it sees you know, dollar sign, open curly, and filled with something and then a closed curly, it looks at that and it tries to interpret that and tries to say, hey, were they trying to get me to invoke one of my really super cool, powerful features uh, by putting this in the text that they're logging to this file? And if so, I will interpret what is between those curly braces or attempt to interpret it and then go do whatever it is that this developer was trying to get me to do. This JNDI operation is one such operation. And sadly, I don't know who thought this was a good idea. If you were to log something with in a dollar sign, curly, JNDI, colon, blah, 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 close curly brace, it would interpret that, and one of the potential things that it could do if you told it to do the right thing is go load some other resource from somewhere out on the internet. Not just locally, not just from the computer it's running on, but from anywhere. And so what these guys figured out was that if you log dollar brace JNDI colon and then like an LDAP search or an HTTP search for certain Java objects, you can force this computer that's supposed to be doing nothing more than this anodyne mundane thing of printing logs into a file, telling it to go out on the internet, download potentially malicious software, and run it. Yeah. Why would you ever do that? <laughs> Why? In heaven's name, does a logging subsystem ever need to do something like that? So this software is used all over the place and you might be thinking, okay, that still sounds really arcane. You know, how in the world could, you know, how, how is someone externally going to cause something like that to happen? It turns out it's really simple. Here's one example. Uh, and this was found in Apple's iCloud. Now I'm picking on them just because of this example, but this is, this could be done anywhere, anywhere this log4j is used, is used. This is an option that could be done. Somebody changed one of their phone into their settings that if you look at the iPhone right now and if you go into your phone's general information, you probably have an iPhone with a default name of something like Carrie's iPhone 13 Pro. You know, that's the default name that Apple gives your device so that when you're looking for that device on your network, you, know, you can recognize which device that is. Somebody went into their iPhone and changed the name of their iPhone to include dollar curly JNDI. And in this point, they actually just pointed it to another server that did something harmless uh, and then close curly. They just changed the name of their phone to be this. And they immediately saw when they did this uh, 
that the server that they pointed to in that JNDI command got hit, which means that somewhere up in iCloud, when he changed the name of his phone, some service somewhere dutifully logged that, hey, Kerry Parker just changed the name of his iPhone. You know, note this for future reference. He changed it from, you know, Kerry's iPhone 13 Pro to dollar open curly brace, JNDI colon, do something harmless, close curly brace. Oh, hey, that's something I'm supposed to do something with. Let me interpret that and go do it. And so, and so when it did that, it, it, this JNDI command told it to go access the server that this guy was monitoring, and he noticed immediately that that server got hit, meaning that the change that he made filtered all the way up through Apple's iCloud, hit some log4j server somewhere, and then got interpreted and then got executed. Okay, I know that was technical, but <laughs> hopefully I explained it in a way that's at least semi-comprehensible. And now you understand how easy this is to exploit. If that person had filled that in with a web address to some malicious software, he could have caused malicious software to be running on an Apple server somewhere with full privileges of that server. And so there's a couple takeaways. Well, all the ones I just mentioned, but another one that is crucial for web security is you always, 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 always validate, double, triple, quadruple check any input you get from a user because you can't trust them. You can't just blindly interpret and execute input from a user. So what to do? Again, you as a user, there's not a lot you could do unless you happen to be running a Minecraft server, in which case I would stop that immediately and make sure you've got all the updates necessary before you run that again. Honestly, I would just not be running a Minecraft server. I've as much as a techie as I am for all the networking stuff I've got, I do not poke holes in my firewall for anything. If I'm going to run some sort of a cool web service, it's going to run in my house and not be accessible from the broader internet. If I want to do that, I will rent service on a cloud server somewhere and do it from there. So anyway, other than that, unless, unless you're really running something else really weird in your house uh, that happens to have a Log4j server running on it, which <laughs> probably not, update your Log4j. And then otherwise, this is all going to fall on all the companies out there, and there are millions. This is this is used everywhere. And they are all right now scrambling to get their log4j software updated or to follow some mitigation procedures that would at least like, for instance, disable this whole JNDI thing from even working. But it's not that simple. Some of these servers, uh, you know, when you get into an enterprise environment where you've got, you know, dozens or hundreds of servers, you can't just snap your fingers and do software upgrades. I mean, there are processes in place, you know, they, they want to check other security things because if you're updating that, you're probably updating, you know, 50 other things as well, you know, and they, those things don't happen overnight. You don't turn the battleship on a dime. So probably a lot of those companies are trying to do the mitigation procedures first until they can get the software updates done. And it's just ruined the holiday break for a lot of poor security and IT people out there. So spare a thought for those poor bastards. In the meantime, this is really bad. I mean, this, this is, this is bad. The, the bad guys are going to be doing everything they can to exploit this as quickly as possible before these fixes and mitigations get put in place, which means that in a lot of cases, these companies are going to be in, you know, firefighting mode because they will probably already be hacked. And now they're going to need to get unhacked. This is bad. I mean, we, we have not seen the last of this. Um, there haven't been any true horror stories yet, but man, they're probably going to be. 
there's probably going to be horrible data breaches. There could be national security incidents that we'll never hear about because they're spy level stuff. I'm sure actually that our, <laughs> that our spies are probably trying to exploit these as best they can right now as well. It's, it's ugly. This is, this is one of the worst cybersecurity problems ever. And this is not the last we will, we will hear about this. So after that fun news, let me read this article from CPO Magazine about a payroll provider that may screw up your Christmas paycheck and how it may be related to this as well. So from CPO Magazine, it says, A major payroll provider used by thousands of businesses in the United States, including government agencies, is reporting that it expects to be down for weeks due to a devastating ransomware attack. Kronos, known to be used by several thousand companies ranging from Tesla to National Public Radio, or NPR, had its private cloud service go offline on Monday. This element is central to its UKG Workforce Central, UKG Telestaff, and Banking Scheduling Solution services used to track employee hours and process paychecks. The company confirmed that it had discovered an ongoing ransomware attack on December 11th and had taken the services hosted in Kronos Private Cloud offline as part of its mitigation measures. Kronos did not give a timetable for recovery, but said that it expects to be at least several days, if not weeks, before the services are fully online again. Though it has not been confirmed, there is speculation that the notorious log-for-shell vulnerability was involved given that Kronos cloud services are known to be built on Java to a great degree. The ransomware attack apparently did so much damage that Kronos expects it to be several days before even some level of service is restored. Given that full recovery could take weeks, the company has urged customers to look for other payroll providers to fill in for now. It is not known what malware was involved in the ransomware attack or how it got started, but for some reason, Kronos opted to put out a prominent notice about its awareness of the recently discovered Log4j vulnerability and its ongoing efforts to patch out its systems to secure against it. While it did not make a direct connection between that and the ransomware attack, this, plus the fact that Kronos cloud services are built with a great deal of Java, has led to speculation that the highly publicized Log4Shell exploit may have been involved. All right, it goes on, but I'll stop there. Uh, you get the idea. So if that's the case, then maybe that's the first really major domino to fall as a result of all this Log4J stuff. I guarantee it won't be the last. All right, let's move on to some, maybe some more positive news. This one, actually, I'm not sure what to make of this, but just real quick, I'll read this from The Verge. It says, uh, Log Me In plans to spin out password management tool LastPass as a standalone company, it announced Tuesday. With the change, LastPass is promising that customers will receive enhancements on an accelerated timeline next year. And this is a quote from a spokesperson. Quote, with a team solely dedicated to its continuing innovation and growth, LastPass will be able to deliver even more strongly for users, unquote. LastPass, which LogMeIn purchased for $125 million in 2015, is a popular password management tool. It's used by, quote, more than 30 million users and 85,000 businesses worldwide, unquote, according to LogMeIn. And the, quote, unquote, significant majority of its business is corporate customers. LogMeIn's emphasis on LastPass corporate use in its press release could suggest that the standalone company is going to focus more on that audience. The change arrives almost a year after LastPass added significant restrictions to its free tier, which is why I 
got so upset last year. LastPass now limits free users to only viewing and managing passwords on mobile devices or your computer. To access your passwords on all devices, you need to have a paid plan. If you're still on LastPass's free plan and want to move to another password manager, we've got a guide you can follow right here. And of course, again, that's a link you can't click on. LogMeIn has also been criticized for tripling the price of LastPass premium between 2017 and 2019. Though a spokesman tells The Verge there are no plans to change LastPass's pricing. All right, so I've, I still use LastPass. I've used it for many years. I've recommended it for many years. It does a great job. It's got great services. It's very secure. But yeah, LogMeIn bought them out. And then not too long after that, they raised prices. And then they took away things that they were giving away for free, which is a huge PR no-no in my book. Once something has been given away for free for a long period of time, you just can't take that away. Instead, they should have, you know, offered even more compelling services that would drive people to pay for it. And, you know, they can't, but you can't take away stuff you've been giving away for free. That's just, that's just bad. So that really ticked me off. And so I pointed a lot of people to other ones like uh, Bitwarden is probably my current go-to now. Uh, if someone's looking, if, if someone hasn't started any password manager stuff at all, and they definitely need something that's free, uh, I would point them to Bitwarden. Now, I, I pay for LastPass. I, I still think it does great stuff. I want to support them and support companies like them, so I pay for these products. And so, you know, I'm deep into LastPass and probably I'm not going to change unless they screw something else up with this new <laughs> this new maneuver. But if you're just starting out and haven't done it before, it's, you know, LastPass is fine. It's certainly if you're willing to pay for it. There's no reason not to use LastPass if you're, if you're looking for the four-pay tier anyway. But also give Bitwarden a hard look and 1Password. Those are, those are probably the three that I would recommend. All right, now I've got several short stories here about some updates to uh, Apple's iOS, which runs on the iPhone and the iPad, and macOS, which of course runs on their Mac products. They released a lot of really cool features uh, that were kind of announced last summer uh, and have finally made their debut in these iOS and macOS updates. So these are really short articles. Uh, almost all of these are from Mac Rumors. So let me just read a couple of these real quick. First of all, App Privacy Report. Apple and iOS 15.2 beta, and uh, these articles came out shortly before they were released to the public and not in beta. So just kind of ignore the fact that it says beta for now, because these are actually in the regular versions that they're referring to. Apple and the iOS 15.2 beta introduced App Privacy Report, a feature that was first shown off at WWDC, which is the summer thing I was talking about. That's their worldwide developer conference. App Privacy Report is designed to provide users with information on how often apps are accessing sensitive info provided to them through privacy permissions, such as location, contacts, camera, microphone, and photos. Apple also displays network activity, letting you know which domain apps are contacting in the background. App Privacy Report can be enabled in the Settings app by following these instructions. Open the Settings app, scroll down and tap on Privacy. In the Privacy section on the Settings app, scroll down and tap on App Privacy Report. Tap and turn on App Privacy Report. If you already had Record App Activity enabled in iOS 15 or 15.1, App Privacy Report will automatically be on and it will already be populated with data. If you did not, you may need to use apps and websites for a few minutes before you start seeing data. Apple shows data from the last seven days, and the app is split up into several sections to make it easier to get what you want to know. So anyway, yeah, I highly recommend you do this and then go check it out. See what, see what kind of stuff is there. See if anything kind of raises your eyebrows and then maybe use that as a tool for saying, you know what? I don't need this app that much. It's kind of creeping me out. I'm going to either go into the privacy settings and disable some of the stuff that I gave it access to that I probably shouldn't have, or just delete the app. 
But what I'm really interested to see is now that this is out there, this is about awareness and transparency. So um, I, what I want to see is I want to, now that this is being recorded, I want to see what apps get called out as doing more than they should be doing and doing some weird things and having to explain themselves and then seeing how they react, you know, maybe stop doing those things or at least try to explain why they're doing them. So anyway, transparency is always the first step. All right, next up, uh, this is about family access to your data. And this is, this is called legacy contact. This is really cool. And it says, when iOS 15 was first introduced in June, Apple outlined a new digital legacy feature that's designed to let you set a person as your legacy contact, giving the person access to your Apple ID account and personal information in the event of your death. Apple did not include legacy contact in the iOS 15 launch as the feature was not ready, but it is available in the iOS 15.2 and iPadOS 15.2 betas, betas that were released today. And again, it's no longer beta, it's actually in the regular release. The legacy contact option can be accessed by opening the settings app, tap on your profile picture, and then select password and security. From there, choose legacy contact from the list, and you can select a trusted person to access your account after you pass away. The person will, will have access to your data, and the contact will need to provide an access key and a copy of a death certificate to use your Apple ID account. The feature is designed to give your loved ones access to your photos, videos, notes, documents, and other personal information. So it's really good to know that this feature is there, but it's also just good to be thinking about this, and I'm using this as an opportunity to bring this up, is we all have a lot of digital data out there. And... We have accounts that are set up online now. Uh, a lot of our utilities and banks and financial and medical and historical uh, stuff like family photos and things like that are all locked up behind IDs and passwords. So along with LastPass, LastPass actually has a very similar feature where you can designate an emergency contact. And so after you're incapacitated or dead or whatever or unreachable, uh, the people or person that you designate as your special contact can request access. And if you, and you can set this, this is a setting you can set in LastPass, and I'm sure other password managers have similar features. And if you don't reply within a certain amount of time, then they get access to all your stuff. And so this is important, right? Because if you have, you know, accounts that need to be managed or utilities or, or mortgage payments to be made or whatever, it's important that your family or your spouse or whoever that might need to manage those things will have access to those things. So this is Apple's way of giving uh, another another way of giving you access to these things, which is great. Uh, the other thing I will say is that maybe you don't want them to have access to certain things. And so you need to figure that out. Like, uh, for instance, I'm a big journaler. I've, I, I've been journaling for decades. And my journals, honestly, are for me. It's really a way for me to work out stuff and for me to be able to go back and kind of historically look at where I was at and things I was thinking and planning and, you know, some of it's mundane, but those are mostly for me. And I've, I've got notes in my will uh, and in some of my uh, other things that will become available upon my death to my family saying what I want done with those things. And they're all password protected. So uh, those passwords are maybe ones that I just want to die with me. So anyway. The bottom line here is this is a cool feature, uh, but it's also an opportunity for you to be thinking about your digital legacy and how you want that handled. Uh, and just one more note in your will, and everybody needs to have one in your will, you can actually designate a separate person for your digital legacy. If you want an executor of your digital estate, you can actually make that a separate person from your, whoever's going to handle your physical and you know, a worldly stuff. 
So there's a little tip for you. Go get your will uh, and make sure that you have some sort of mechanism for your loved ones to get to the stuff they need to be able to get to if you become incapacitated, included but not limited to dying. All right, here's another cool feature. Uh, and this was sort of available already, but now it's easier to access. And this is the hide my email feature. Again, this is from Mac Rumors. It says iCloud Plus subscribers who use Hide My Email can do so directly from the mail app after installing iOS 15.2, iPadOS 15.2, and macOS Monterey 12.1 betas that came out today. And again, no longer beta, it's out there. The feature update is outlined in Apple's release notes for the beta, and it should make Hide My Email much more convenient to use on Apple devices. For those unfamiliar with Hide My Email, it's an iOS 15 and macOS Monterey feature available to everyone with a paid iCloud Plus plan, and those can start at $0.99 cents a month. Hide My Email allows users to create unique, random email addresses that forward to a personal inbox. It's similar to a password manager for email addresses, with users able to generate random email addresses for each website or login. All the emails sent to the random Apple-created email address are forwarded, to, are forwarded to you so you can respond if needed, but the person on the receiving end does not see your real email address. And if you start getting spam emails from someone, you can just delete the email address and put a stop to it. Hide My Email was previously available from iCloud settings on Apple devices, but now it can also be accessed directly in the Mail app. In the Mail app, when composing an email, click on the From field to see the option to generate a Hide My Email email address. Selecting this feature will generate a random email address, effectively concealing your true email address. So this is a great feature. And there have been similar ones to this in the past, but the really cool thing about this one is that it supports replying. And that may sound silly, but uh, there are other services out there that would let you generate random email addresses and forward to whatever other real address you wanted to forward to. But then if you then turned around and replied to an email you got that way, the recipient would see your real email address. This takes care of all that. When you reply, it reshuffles the addresses so that the address they see is the one they originally sent the email to and the one they know you by. So this isn't actually just a privacy feature, you know, or a way to control spam. It's actually a great security feature. If you start using this as you sign up for accounts somewhere, this gives you a different login on all these different services, and that prevents uh, attacks like credential stuffing, where once I learn your email address, which... For most people, is their user ID that they used to log into everything. If you reused a password, then now they've got both pieces of information. They've got your user ID and password, and they can try those other websites too. But if your user ID is different for other websites, especially if it's random, then that takes one thing away. Now, you shouldn't be reusing passwords anyway. But it does, you know, lend some security because just because they come up with one of your crazy random email addresses, they won't be able to figure out any other sites that you use uh, based on that same email address. So anyway, great feature, now easier to use. All right, now one more, and this one is a little more controversial. Uh, and this is about uh, safety features for kids. And we talked about these at length a couple months ago. Uh, let me read this article and then we'll talk a little bit more. Uh, Apple over the summer announced new child safety features that were aimed at keeping children safer online. Apple has confirmed that one of those features, communication safety and messages, has been enabled in the second beta of iOS 15.2 that was released today, after hints of it appeared in the first beta. Note that communication safety is not the same as the controversial anti-CSAM feature that Apple plans to implement in the future after revisions, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Communication safety is a family sharing feature that can be enabled by parents and is opt-in rather than activated by default. When turned on, the Messages app is able to detect nudity in images that are sent or received by children. 
If a child receives or attempts to send a photo with nudity, the, the image will be blurred and the child will be warned about the content, told that it's okay to not view the photo, and offered resources to contact someone they trust for help. When communication safety was first announced, Apple said that parents of children under the age of 13 had the option to receive a notification if the child viewed a nude image in messages. But after receiving feedback, Apple has removed this feature. Apple now says that no notifications are sent to parents. Apple removed the notification option because it was suggested that parental notification could pose a risk for a child in a situation where there is parental violence or abuse. For all children, including those under age 13, Apple will instead offer guidance on getting help from a trusted adult in a situation where nude photos are involved. Checking for nudity in photos is done on device, with messages analyzing image attachments. The feature does not impact the end-to-end -end encryption of messages, and no indication of the detection of nudity leaves the device. Apple has no access to the messages. Now, that last part is actually not 100% true. If you in your settings, in your backup settings on your phone, have decided to backup your messages to iCloud, then Apple could go view those messages. Make sure you know and understand that. So while there is end-to-end encryption, this is a major hole that I really wish they would fix. In other words, they need to give you the option. Well, you always have the option of not backing up your messages to iCloud, which I don't, and it's not on by, I don't think it's on by default. But if you do, Apple really needs to give you, because I'd like that option. I would like to back up my messages, uh, but I just want to be the one to control the encryption key so that even Apple can't see them. And they really need to give us that option. Okay, so the CSAM thing. Um, turns out that Apple has quietly removed all mention of the anti-CSAM feature uh, from its website. Um, I have not verified this myself. I just read an article about this, but it kind of looks like Apple has maybe and wisely decided to just bury that and forget about that feature. There was a lot of pushback. I mean, obviously, you know, CSAM, child sexual abuse material, you would think we should do anything possible to stop that. Well, be careful what you say when you start throwing around anything. It's a little more nuanced than that. And if you want to get the full description on why that might be, you know, go back a few episodes where I talked about this at length. But it looks like maybe after a lot of blowback on that, because of the way Apple implemented that, uh, or the way Apple was planning to implement that, that they have shelved that possibly for good. All right. It's been a long news day, but we are down to the last one. And this is going to go right into our tip of the week. And this is from an article uh, from Gizmodo. And it's about a new Verizon feature that you are probably going to want to opt out of. And sadly, you have to opt out of because you were opted in by default. Verizon customers who value their privacy should immediately opt out of the phone carrier's disturbing new data tracking service. As reported by Input, Verizon Customer Experience is a program being pitched to users as a way for the company to, quote, personalize our communications with you, give you more relevant product and service recommendations, and develop plans, services, and offers that are more appealing to you, unquote. Here's the thing. To do so, the nation's largest mobile carrier needs to see the websites you visit, the apps you use, your location, and the people you contact. If that wasn't scary enough, the custom experience program is opt-out, meaning Verizon automatically enrolls you without asking for permission. Nothing I've read about the program would make me even consider staying in, especially since Verizon is sneakily signing people up without asking. In an example of how the program might benefit you, Verizon says that it could present music listeners with a, quote, Verizon offer that includes music content, unquote, or give you a, quote, choice related to a concert in our Verizon Up Reward program, unquote. 
The, co the company then tries to persuade you with, quote, personalized content and marketing, unquote, when opting into Customer Experience Plus. I can't think of anyone who would want Verizon to help curate their music selection or send them targeted ads. It's clear the primary goal of this program is to collect customer information at a level that would make Facebook blush, something all too familiar for telecom companies. Verizon says it keeps data about the websites you visit for no more than six months and holds on to location and customer proprietary network information info for up to a year. Call records, including the times and duration of calls, are recorded. Fortunately, conversations and text messages are not used. And this is another quote from Verizon. It says, quote, We do not share information that identifies you outside of Verizon as part of these programs other than with service providers who work for us. Oh, gee, who could that be? These service providers are required to use the information only for the purposes Verizon defines and not for their own or others' marketing or advertising purposes, unquote. And as we have already seen, that is insufficient. Okay, if there's a silver lining, it's that leaving the program is a relatively simple process. You just need to log into your Verizon mobile account on the My Verizon app and enter the Settings tab where you should see the option to Leave Customer Experience and Customer Experience Plus. Press Don't Use for both programs to keep Verizon's snooping eyes away from your data. While you're at it, you can toggle off more data sharing options. From within the same settings where you opt out of customer experience, tap on the reset button so Verizon stops using the web browsing and location data it already gathered as part of the program. What's troubling about the latest effort is how innocuous it might seem to Verizon subscribers. How many of the endless emails that you've received from your carrier have you read from top to bottom? I can only imagine how many people will remain in the program not because they want to be involved, but because they had no idea it existed in the first place. All right, so that's the end of the article. Man, I'm so tired of this. I'm just so, so, so tired of this stuff. But yeah, so please, if you're on Verizon, please opt out of this. Again, even if you don't care about this particular thing, at least register your utter disdain for this sort of practice and just say no. Now, of course, they've been doing this for a long time, and we've let them do this. We had bills in place that would have limited this data collection uh, in the previous administration, actually in the Obama administration here in the U.S., that was set to go into place and then was struck down by the new FCC chair that Trump installed and Congress uh, at that time also basically made it impossible to ban these things again, giving basically free reign for ISPs, including Verizon, to collect as much data on you as they want and sell it. Uh, whatever. I'm just so tired of this stuff. Um, but I will say real quick, and again, I realize this is very United States focused. If you are outside the U.S. and obviously you're using a different carrier, know that these things are possible and do some research and find ways to opt out of these wherever you can. Log into your account, go into your profile, try to find anything they've got in their marketing stuff. And they often hide this stuff. It's hard to come by. Try to find it and opt out of whatever you can, because invariably they are going to get as much information from these as they can. And unless you are in the EU, perhaps where these things require explicit consent, some of these things may be opted in by default. Uh, so in, in the U S if you're on T-Mobile, you can adjust this. You can, you have a couple options here. You can go to the, my T-Mobile application or to my T-Mobile.com, find your advertising and analytics settings Find the setting that says use my data to make ads more relevant and turn that off. Apparently, there's also something under privacy and notifications and advertising and analytics. And there's another option there for use my data to make ads more relevant. You can turn that off there too. 
And then AT&T is even a little harder. I actually have AT&T. I've gone to my account. I tried to find this. I could not find it. Uh, there's no direct link to it. You have to know the special link. So it's att.com slash CMP choice. That's Susan, Charlie, M as in Mary, P as in Paul, choice, CMP choice. If you go there and you're logged into your account, uh, you can have a little, there's a little section there in the middle called control how we use your data and just go through each of those settings and make sure you turn them all off. And if you've got multiple phone numbers for those, for that account, like I do, you have to do it for each individual phone number associated with that account. And so there you have it, folks. We caught up on a whole bunch of important news today. And there is your tip of the week. All right, everybody. Thanks for hanging in there. We had a lot to catch up on today. So a few things uh, before we go. First of all, my patron holiday party is coming up. I'm really looking forward to that. We are still in the process of trying to pick the date and time that works best for most of my patrons. So if you are one of my patrons, uh, please go look for that poll. And if you want to come to the holiday party, fill out that poll and list as many possible dates as you could possibly make because I want to you know, maximize attendance. So check off everything that applies for you. Uh, and then by Christmas Eve, which is coming up this Friday, I will make the final choice. I'll set up a Zoom meeting and we'll have some fun hanging out and chatting together. And so if you are not a patron, uh, now might be a great time to join. We're going to have a we're gonna have fun hanging out and you'll basically have an hour, hour and a half to drink with me and what our other patrons make it. And we'll just chill out and talk about whatever. You can ask me whatever questions you want. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. And it doesn't have to end there. Once you're a patron, you can interact with me on uh, Discord all year long. And you get sneak peeks on what's going to be in the upcoming podcast. And I'll tell you about upcoming interviews and stuff I'm doing and some other cool things. Uh, I try to make it worth your while. So anyway, if you haven't looked at that recently, go check out patreon.com and look at Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And you'll get an overview there of all the cool stuff I give to my patrons. Also, now would be a great time, if you have not already, uh, to subscribe to my newsletter. I haven't really talked about it much. I don't bring it up that often. But I just had my best and worst gift list. That's still out there. Um, and I also send that in the newsletter. And by the way, my newsletter and blog are usually the same thing. So if you're the kind of person that would rather, you know, seek this information out on your own time and, and, and you'll bookmark my site and go read these articles on your own, fine. But if you'd like, you can have them automatically sent to you every two weeks. And coming up, I've got my annual New Year's resolution one where I kind of prod you to uh, doing some things that we should all be doing. And whenever you sign up for the newsletter, you get a couple cool things. You'll get a little PDF pamphlet of my top five tips, and you'll also get access to the first chapter of my book. Actually, it's two chapters, technically, if you include, if you include the preface. So you get a little sneak peek at the book and the style, and you get an idea of whether if that's something you want to uh, pick up the whole book. So anyway, that's all free if you sign up for the newsletter. The holidays, again, are coming up. We're going to have opportunities, even with the pandemic, uh, on some level of hanging out with friends and family. And so I'd like to suggest humbly that you, you know, as you're socializing over the holidays, that you take this opportunity to bring up security and privacy. And there's obviously there's plenty of things going on in the news. If you just want to kind of rattle off some current events, that should get things going. But, you know, we need to have more awareness of these things. We need to bring these things up more often. So make sure your friends and family are aware. And there's, again, there's lots of opportunities. We've covered several today you know, things you can kind of break up and talk about and explain why security and privacy really are important. You know, spread awareness. It's, it's, it really is an important thing. This word of mouth is, is crucial. Also, if you happen to have a social media presence, that's a great place to do it as well. Now, if the people you talk to or ends up saying, hey, that's really cool. I, I want to learn more. 
Well, obviously, there's a lot of things you could point to uh, on my end where they might want to find some more information. They got the blog, the newsletter, the podcast, the book. Uh, also, if you just want to go to the website, I've got a resources tab that's got links to all sorts of other things they might want to check out as well. So if nothing else, just point them to the website. Now, okay, i uh, got some shows coming up. So I've got a special holiday episode next week. And of course, I'm going to be kind of busy. So I'm going to pre-record this. But basically what I'm going to do, and I'll probably end up doing this, honestly, a lot of podcasts do this for this last episode of the year. Uh, it's going to be a best of 2021 episode. So I went back, and this is actually kind of a painstaking process, honestly, but going back and re-listening myself to a lot of old podcasts from the, from the past year and trying to pick out some snippets that I thought were good. And, you know, I'll have a little commentary of my own, some recent commentary interspersed between these things. But it's, you know, if, you, if you've been a listener all year long, then obviously you will have heard most of these things. But it, this would be a great podcast to share with somebody else if the, if they're thinking about becoming a subscriber to the podcast. It'll give them a nice kind of overview of the kind of stuff that I cover. And then after that, we're going to be back to our interview shows. I had a wonderful chat actually yesterday, uh, as of the time I recorded this, the representative from Common Sense Media. Uh, if you've never heard of them, but you've got kids, then you need to know about these guys. They do some really great work. But they just released this really interesting kids' privacy report. It's geared toward a lot of school-based stuff, uh, but it's not just that. And we're going to talk about, you know, privacy from a, a kid's perspective. It's it's different. There are other considerations there. And it was just really fascinating. So, and it's a very, very comprehensive report. If you have anything to do with policymaking, or if you're an educator in any way, shape, or form, or know people that are, uh, this is a really important report. And I highly encourage you to read it. But if nothing else, listen to the podcast episode coming up soon. I've got a great interview on that. Also coming up soon, I do my annual New Year's resolutions. That'll be in the blog and the newsletter, and I'm sure I'll talk about that. It's my tip of the week in the podcast. Not sure if that's going to happen the week of New Year's, because that's probably going to be the interview. It might be the week after that, but you've got all year to work on it. So if I'm, a, if I'm a week late on giving your tips, I don't think it's going to be too late. Also coming up, uh, I'll have my annual listener poll. I'd love to get feedback from you guys on things that you like about the show, things that you think maybe could be improved, you know, talk about you know, maybe some mundane things like topic areas and how long the podcast should be and whatever. But it's my opportunity once a year to put it out there and, and get some feedback from you guys on uh, how I can make this show better. And I want to make it as informative and helpful as as I can. Also, Data Privacy Week is coming up. Uh, that used to be Data Privacy Day. They have now made it into an entire week. That's January 24th through 28th. We will definitely be uh, talking about some top privacy tips then and hopefully have a killer interview uh, somewhere around that time. And as always, I've got I've got lots of great interviews in the pipeline. So subscribe if you haven't. I would love to get some great reviews. I need fresh ones all the time. So uh, if you haven't already given me a nice review on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast, I would very much appreciate that. I do keep an eye on the ones that are on iTunes. And if I see new ones there, I will read them here on the air. Also, if you've, if you've read the book, uh, I would love to get a, a review on Amazon. Those are very, very helpful. And again, it's good to have fresh ones. Even though I've got some out there now, it's really good to kind of keep them going and to keep uh, new ones there because people look at the newest ones first. All right, that's going to do it, everybody. Happy, happy holidays. Please have a safe holiday break, whatever holiday uh, you happen to be celebrating at this point. Have a wonderful New Year's. Please, please, if you're going to be out in public, uh, make sure you're fully vaccinated and boosted. Wear your mask. Avoid situations where you're going to be around a lot of people who aren't. But still, I hope you manage to have some great times with friends and family. It's that time of year where we kind of all collectively take a break, take a breath, and spend time with the people that are really most important to us. So happy holidays, everybody. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, 
don't get caught with your drawbridge down. 